You're listening to 42 to Doomsday, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. and welcome to another episode of 42 to Doomsday. I'm Rob. I'm Mark. And I'm JR. And we're very pleased to have JR uh, tonight as our, as our guest host, as our guest on the podcast. JR, as everyone uh, should know, uh, is a columnist uh, with Starburst magazine. And of course, um, he's the, uh, one of the contributors to the Blue Box podcast which is very shortly to celebrate 100 episodes. Hello, JR, and welcome. Hello. Yeah, by the time this goes out, actually, our 100th episode should be out there in the world of the podcast. By the time this goes out, your 150th will be out. <laughs> Depends how much editing you need to do. Mark was saying earlier that uh, today apparently is the 10th anniversary of uh, podcasting, or the first podcast to be released out into the internet. Is that right, Mark? That's right. There's an article in the Independent Newsletter. Uh, newsletter. <laughs> well, they are these days. Newspapers are dead. Uh, there's an article on there. I might uh, find it and uh, set it out in our tweets. Wow. It was quite interesting reading. And then they were also saying, what is the future of podcasting? Um... And because they were lamenting the fact that in podcasts used to be incorporated into iTunes, so people could search around and find stuff a lot easier, Apple took that uh, application out separately and podcasts a little bit harder to find. So um, I'll, I'll find that article and send it around. Oh, that's interesting. The easiest way, of course, to find your podcast is to make sure that peop- you know, you've got a direct link to it, I suppose, wherever you're advertising it, Facebook and Twitter. It's never struck me to really be on iTunes searching for things. You have to have a lot of ratings and, and rankings to sort of get your head up above the rest of them. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree. Unless you know what you're looking for, um, you're only getting... Uh, iTunes is only serving up recommendations based on what people are downloading and what people are, are reviewing and rating them as. And the thing is, these days as well, there are so many podcasts, and a lot of the ones that come up to the top are like official podcasts from huge organizations like the BBC and many other organizations so the kind of podcasts that used to be around and that still are around but that started this whole thing and got the ball rolling uh, kind of get left by the wayside now thanks to all these official podcasts coming through I refuse to further gold plate Steve Jobs's tomb so I don't really visit RTNC no <laughs> <laughs> that was a terrible thing to say. I do apologise. <laughs> <laughs> this is the anti-Apple podcast. No, but I suppose we're, we're wandering right off topic here. But I mean, I suppose that's the way with uh, with you know new things that come along. Uh, small, smaller, sort of uh, almost like a craft craft work sort of thing comes up, and then the big businesses realise that there's money to be made, and they they they, uh, they push their way in. So mm. uh, it's happening with podcasts more and more, I suppose. But uh, you know, niche ones like ours. Uh, appeal to a, a niche audience and uh, a Doctor Who audience, obviously. So I suppose we're better able to target uh, our audience uh, more than sort of a, a larger organisation which has to take a broader approach and sort of a hit and miss. Well, what Apple should do is their recommendations page should only include podcasts that have fewer than X amount of people downloading it or have been around for less than X amount of time. Uh, otherwise, once a podcast is established, why does it need recommending? People know about it already. 
it should their new and recommended should be for new podcasts that are looking to get listeners. I like that approach. Yeah, I can just see as up and up and center on the. Uh... Steve Jobs' mausoleum page. <laughs> Speaking of anniversaries, today apparently is the fourth anniversary of Matt Smith's first appearance, which um, is uh, is convenient because we'll be talking uh, later on about who is the best uh, modern doctor since the show returned um, almost 10 years ago now. And I was actually watching The 11th Hour last night, and uh, I don't want to preempt my thoughts on who may be the best doctor, but I was very, very taken with uh, Matt Smith's, uh, I don't suppose it was his, oh no, his first performance, the first episode, but I won't preempt my later thoughts. Um, So as I said before, we're very happy to have J.R. Southall with us, uh, and uh, since we have him here, we might as well just quiz him with a few questions. Uh, J.R., um, as we know, you you write for Starburst regularly with each issue, and of course you've got the Blue Box podcast. Yeah. I mean, how did you um, how did you become how did you get involved with uh, say Starburst first? I saw an advert on Facebook. <laughs> it was as simple as that. <laughs> there was a, that easy. Yeah. Well, I mean, Starburst started back in I think it was December '77, and I was young then, but old enough to you know be following films like Star Wars and of course Doctor Who. So I used to buy it back then, and of course you never dreamed that you might be writing for something one day in the future so when an advert came up on facebook that just said oh starburst's coming back because a couple of years previously the company that had been putting it out had gone under and of course starburst had gone under with it somebody knew had um taken up the rights to be able to publish it they put an advert on facebook probably other places as well asking for people to write for it and i just sent the guy who was going to be editing it a link to an essay I'd put up on um, on Gallifrey Base and a couple of other things I'd written elsewhere. And he just got back to me and said, yeah, I like your writing. We'll have you on the team. So that was basically it, really, as simple as that. Had you done much writing before? I'd only been on the internet for a couple of years, so not a great deal. I mean, I used to write short stories and stuff just on an old typewriter prior to being on the internet. But writing about things, I'd never never been involved in a fanzine or anything like that so i'd never written about doctor who until i found this um thread this little area on gallifrey base where you could put essays up so i thought yeah i'll have some of that and so i wrote a couple of essays and put them on there and that's what basically got me the gig at starburst and what was the impulse behind writing i mean a lot of doctor who fans uh sort of have a creative outlet through the show but what was the impulse for you to you sort of put your thoughts down in terms of an essay on, on Gallifrey Base? What was the impetus or impulse for that? What were you hoping to achieve, I suppose? I think it's less about what I wanted to achieve than what about I, than about something I couldn't achieve. In other words, I used to, and still do, but not as frequently as I used to, I used to go to the pub with a couple of mates just to talk about Doctor Who. We're all Doctor Who fans. We'd just sit down with a drink for the evening and talk about Doctor Who. You know, exactly the same as everybody else does. But one of these friends talks an awful lot. And what I was finding was I never got a chance to uh, put my opinion across. So I think what I really did when I sat down and wrote the first essay was I wrote the opinion that I'd have given him if he hadn't have cut me off halfway through. (laughs) (laughs) And that's about it, really. And uh, Blue Box Podcast, did that spring out? I mean, I know it's hosted uh, in part on the uh, Starburst website. Is that that, uh, an idea of a group of friends and yourself? No, I had no... Prior to doing that, I had never listened to a podcast. I kind of had a vague idea of what a podcast was, but having never listened to one and having never read about one or had any interest in them... 
I just really had no idea. And then I got an email from the editor at the magazine and he said, look, we have the Starburst podcast on the website, but we want to expand. So we've got lots of different podcasts on lots of different things. And we'd like a Doctor Who one and we'd like you to host it. And I said, okay then. And, uh, you know, the next thing I know, I'm getting in touch. I didn't realize you could do it over the internet. I didn't have Skype. I didn't have you know, audacity or any other means to record it. I didn't know you could do it over the internet. I sort of went round to a couple of friends and said, look, they've asked me to do this podcast. I need help. How are we going to record it? How do we do this thing? So for the first few months, we literally would get together in, as it turned out, Mark's living room. And we'd have an old-fashioned recorder with microphones plugged into it. And we'd record it in the old-fashioned way. I mean, it was a digital 16-track recorder, but we'd record it on this recorder, and then afterwards we'd <laughs> we'd take the recording, put it on a CD, where I could take the file off after, you know, I could burn it off onto the computer. Uh, not burn it off, rip it off onto the computer, and then send them the rip. It was crazy. But you find these things out by doing, don't you? Exactly, exactly. I mean, if I'd have known about Skype and everything else before... You know, the chances are it'd have been a completely different team, even. Who knows? But, uh, you know, the way it worked out was for the best because people seem to like the podcast and it's the four of us who do it that people like. So, you know, probably for the best that I didn't know you could do it any other way when we first started. And what sort of feedback do you get from your columns in Starburst? Do, do, I mean, do people still write letters in response? Uh, not really. I don't think they do really at all these days. I mean, we don't even get very many emails through to the podcast actually i don't know how many people listening to it but you know we tend to get two or three emails a week you know we read everything that comes in we read out on the podcast if we did get a load of emails we wouldn't be able to read them all out so it's probably best that we only do get the few people are just not used to writing letters anymore are they People who just used to, you go on the internet and you go on Facebook and you talk to your friends and somebody will put up a status and you'll have a conversation under the status. And that's how it works these days. You know, if you're, if you're listening to a podcast or reading a column in a magazine, you know, you get to the end of it and you're gone. And because when you log on to the internet, all your friends are there and you'll be talking to them, it's not the first thing in your mind to sit down and write an email or a letter, whatever, regarding something you've just read or listened to. And, of course, the other thing about the podcast is people are listening to it while they're at work or on their way to work. If something does come up in the podcast that they want to respond to, they'll end up just shouting at their headphones, and by the time they get to the computer, they'll have forgotten what it was they wanted to say. I was just going to say, would you like... Uh, not, not contrary opinions coming back at you, but would you, would you like more engagement from your audience? You know what? In a way, I would because I'd like to know what people like and which bits we should concentrate on and all that kind of stuff. But the thing is, if we did have lots of people saying, oh, I like such and such, and I like this other thing, and I like something else, A, you would... If you try to please people too much, you'd end up pleasing nobody. A bit like John Nathan Turner in the sort of middle of the 1980s. You'd end up not pleasing anybody. So it's probably for the best that we just do what we do. And people do seem to like it, so uh, we shouldn't really change it, should we? Of course, as well, if we've got so many emails, 
that they'd take up the whole of our time and we'd never actually get to do the things that we do that people like. <laughs> now, you've, um, you mentioned earlier that you'd, you'd written some fiction and I know that you've uh, you've written an audio play, at least Pieces of Eight. Oh, it's now on video as well, you know. Has it? Is it? Yeah. They didn't tell me about this. This was a surprise for me as well as for everybody else. But they got Adam Bullock to animate it and it's now on YouTube as an animation. It's only a very simple animation, of course, but it's... You know, it was a bloody lovely surprise. That's oh, very nice, very nice. So the the I mean, you, you said you you know you wrote you tapped away at a typewriter writing mm. fiction, uh, and then you've uh, you sort of made the transition to sort of more essays and analytical articles and reviews. Mm. Uh, do you, which I mean, I mean your output suggests one, but which do you prefer? I find it much easier to write about stuff than I do to write new stuff. In other words, it's much easier to write the column than it is to write a short story. But uh, I think if a short story is successful, you probably feel more rewarded when you've finished it, I guess. The short stories I tend to... I, d- I never deliberately got into writing fan fiction. I would. Ne- I don't think I'd have ever sat down and thought to write a story which had, you know, um, copyrighted characters in it if somebody hadn't asked me. But uh, I think the first one I did might have been the audio, actually. And I think Scott Burdett said to me, we want to start doing audio dramas as well as the fanzine he was doing. Would you write as a story? And I said yes, and then thought, and then panicked and thought, oh my God, what do I write a story about? Because, you know, it wouldn't wouldn't have been something that I was thinking about. What's the Doctor Who story I want to tell? But at the same time, on the forums, you always get people saying oh, such and such can't happen in the series for such and such a reason. And my response to that is always, no, there's always a way to do something if you want to. And the particular thing was, this was about a year before the anniversary, and people were saying, you can't have the old Doctors in the anniversary story because they're too old and some of them are dead. And my thinking was, well, no, if you want to, there are ways around it. So when Scott asked me to write an audio story, I said to him, okay, (laughs) what are the chances that you can get people who can do impersonations of the first eight doctors so that I can write the store a story not the story but a story that I think they could have done in the anniversary to include a Tom Baker who now looks 80 rather than 40 and Scott said you write the story I'll find people and it was as simple as that really and then I wrote a story that I thought might serve as as an anniversary story if the people producing the programme had wanted to go down that route just to prove that it could be done. And what was it like listening to your uh, your story come to life? Uh, very painful, but that was my own fault, really. Mainly because I'd written it with the intention of it being two 25-minute episodes, very fast and snappy. Yep. And because of the way it's recorded, which is everybody records their bits separately and somebody has to put them together in the edit, the actor's who are doing it aren't going to be that snappy so it was a lot slower than I'd imagined it to be and of course there's too much dialogue in it it's all dialogue because it's audio but it would have worked much better as 225s so if I'd have cut a lot of the stuff out that doesn't really need to be in there anyway and just told the story a lot snappier it would have been a lot better having said that I think everybody involved did a brilliant job and listening back to it afterwards was quite astonishing really it was like oh my god did i write this 
I expect everybody who ever writes audio dramas for Big Finish or whatever gets that the first time. Did you get any feedback on your audio play? Like I say, you don't really get feedback on anything. A little bit. And people will only tend mm. to write if either they really liked something or really hated something. So fortunately, all that I've heard is people who seem to have liked it. Now, um, a year or two back, you uh, you helped put well, you put together uh, a couple of volumes of essays, the You and Who volumes. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, tell us a little bit about um, about working on that because uh, that's a different skill set, uh, corralling and marshalling a, a whole group of disparate people uh, into writing essays about the show. Well, fortunately, it didn't take a lot of work at all. And the reason why is because I think once people have set their mind to write something that they know is going to be published, A, they're going to be the kind of people who are capable of doing that in the first place. Because if you're not capable of writing, you're not going to sit down and tell yourself that you can. Or if you do start, you're going to find that you can't and give up. So it was mostly the right kind of people anyway. But the other thing is, you know, as soon as they realise this is going to be in print, they up their game anyway. So actually, there wasn't as much work needed doing with that as you'd probably imagine there would. I mean, there were a few, there were a few essays that I had to do a fair bit of editing and a couple that I had to do a little bit of rewriting just to sort of pull them into line with the rest of the book, really. But no, it wasn't an awful lot of work. It was a brilliant experience of having a lot of people who were capable writers already sort of channeling that talent into the idea that I'd had in the first place. It was brilliant. I wonder, what is it about the show itself that inspires such creative energies from fans? I mean, is it because the show is effectively uh, an exercise in storytelling more than anything else i think oh god have we got an hour to talk about this we've got three (laughs) (laughs) in the very nuttiest of nutshells though i think it's the variety because i mean any program is or can be about storytelling and any other program could resemble any particular episode or series of Doctor Who but the fact that Doctor Who can change and changes on the whims of the people who make it you know for example with a series like I don't know to name another series I like Inspector Morse Inspector Morse every episode is going to essentially have the same format regardless of who the producers are, regardless of who the writers are. But with Doctor Who, and, you know, Stephen Moffat did this in a big way, which is one of the reasons I think people have taken against him, but as soon as you get somebody new come in to produce or write it, they can change it, and they do. And usually they change it in quite subtle ways that you don't really notice at the time. But if you look back over the classic series, you can see lots of instances where it changed at the whim of the people who were making it that you didn't necessarily notice at the time. Obviously, there are obvious ones. Leisure Hive was a big sea change. But when Philip Hinchcliffe took over from Barry Letts, for example, to most of the people watching it, it just felt like the same programme. But here we are, sort of 40 years later... And we can see that actually it was a massive difference. I think the idea that the difference comes from the people who are making it inspires the people who are watching it to think like the people who are making it and therefore come up with stories and ideas of their own. Now, JR, um, you, as we discussed, you've, you've, you've done those two volumes. Uh, are there any plans further for any other, any other books that you might be involved with? As well, I've been brought an idea and I really can't talk about it because logistically... 
there may be trouble getting it together so it'll only happen if everything falls right for it so that's somewhere in the future Oh, very good. Possibly. Very good. There will probably be more you and who. Uh, John Davis um, is currently doing a sort of Blake 7 volume, which won't go out as you and who, and which will be um, self-published on Lulu. But I think it's not too far in the future. And that is kind of taking the same idea and continuing with it. I don't think the you and who books did quite as well enough for the publisher for him to keep doing them one a year, which it seemed like it might be in the first place. But that won't stop us doing them on Lulu mm. or somewhere like that. Self-publish. Yeah, I think... Because the thing is, you can get away with doing that. You're always going to sell enough copies of a book that has multiple contributors to make it worth doing. And if it's always for charity, there's always a good reason to do it. So I, I can imagine that the You and Who line will continue with different people editing it. But I suspect I'll always be involved somewhere. Because it is a, it was a good idea. You know, I bl- sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet there. But I don't think anybody at the time had quite had that idea. And it was a good enough idea, I think, for it to continue. Because there will always be people who will want to contribute to something like it. Would you like to do a, a biography on a Doctor Who celebrity? John Williams is doing one on Malcolm Hulk. Would you like to, would you like to have a go at that? No, that would put the fear of God into me. I, I, I would say... I wouldn't be capable of doing the research. I don't, I don't think that kind of research is the kind of research that I'd be very capable of doing. I'm quite good at interviewing people because I can stick to the subjects where we share the common ground. But if you're going to do a biography, you also have to go into great detail where there isn't a common ground. And I don't think my capabilities would allow me to do that in the best possible way. So I wouldn't have thought so, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out. You never know. It would probably depend upon who came up. To switch gears completely, uh, the whole saga of missing episodes has gripped... 30 or 40 dedicated Doctor Who fans. Uh, now, Jay, you've been, you've been very vocal in measured terms about, you know, the omni-rumour in quotation marks and the, uh, the various, you know, the, the, the arguments and the discussions that have gone on for the last year and a bit. You take a very logical and measured approach to it, but there's obviously, you know, dozens of other opinions out there who probably take a less measured approach. I mean, what do you take the approach that you do? I think it's... Perhaps the problem with the entire concept of the Omni-Rumour is that, because we don't know what's going on, as soon as an idea gets thrown out there, people will latch on to that idea in the absence of anything else to latch on to. And whether they believe that idea or not, what they're going to do is allow the fact that they've seen that idea to sort of inform the way they understand everything else. And so I think right from the very start, what has happened with this whole project is that it has become this huge misunderstanding in fandom. And as much as you can talk about it now, I don't think you can change that because once you allow a sort of misunderstanding of that magnitude to take root in the way you think about something... You're never going to entirely be able to see that something without it being informed by that misunderstanding. 
And so on the forums, you do have, well, probably maybe a hundred, couple of hundred, whatever, fans talking about this night and day, because we all want the same thing, whether we argue with each other on the forums or not. You know, the end result is something that we all hope for, that we'll get more episodes back. And, you know, the ultimate thing would be to get back all the episodes. Well, nobody knows quite what Phil Morris is doing. And Phil Morris doesn't like to talk about that aspect of what he's doing. Obviously, he did the interview with me, because I specifically said to him, I'd like to do an interview about this aspect, this particular aspect of what you do, which happened to be something he was happy to talk about. But the other aspect of what he does, the actual search, the logistics of it, and whether or not it's successful, of course, is something that he doesn't obviously want to talk about. And it's my opinion, and this is only an opinion from having spoken to him and a few other people about it, is that he never wanted to reveal anything about the search itself until he was happy that it was over. <clears throat> now, people are obviously impatient to see what else he might have found. And because there are a lot of people talking on the forums about what they think he might have found, people are kind of expecting that he will have found more and that he will have found a lot more. But until he actually sits down and says what he's found, you know, you only have speculation. However informed that speculation might think it is, it's still just speculation. So because he's not talked about any of this, that allows that vacuum for all this other conversation and all this speculation to take place in. And when we get to the end of it, when he does turn around and say, right, all the decent leads I have have now been exhausted. I've found everything that I think I'll be capable of finding. And he admitted in the interview that, you know, after he's done that, He's not excluding the idea that there may be other stuff out there that other people may subsequently go on to find. But when he's found everything that he thinks he's capable of finding, then he'll talk about it. Then he'll hand the episodes over. Then we'll know. And then we'll get them. And I think trying to stop him before he gets to that point, which to my mind is what happened last year when they managed to get those nine episodes of him and release them, I think that's a dangerous thing. I think when you're in the middle of something that's taken up your full concentration, the last thing you need is a huge side issue, you know, taking your concentration away. He just wants to get these episodes found in as much as he can find them. And I think we should just let him get on, find the episodes, shouldn't badger him to start making trips back to Britain and sorting out, handing episodes back over until he's ready to do that. I mean, apart from all the other reasons that have been given for why making an announcement when the BBC did could have been dangerous to the search itself. So Phil's come in for quite a bit of criticism, actually, about the whole search mm. and, and the approach and the lack of information. What do you think about the criticisms? and but more particularly, the way they've been expressed? Well, I don't think any of the criticism is deserved. He's gone out to do something that I don't think any of us haven't sat down at some point and thought, if I had the money and the wherewithal, I'd go and do it myself. Well, he did. He managed to go and do it himself. He's doing something that all of us are happy for him to do. So while we should criticise him in his approach... I'm not really entirely sure why, because if he hadn't decided upon that approach in the first place, 
he wouldn't have gone out and done it and we wouldn't have been able to reap any of the rewards. We've already reaped nine rewards. The very idea that there might be more to come should suggest to us as fans that we should just let him get on with it. And any criticism we think we can see is only perhaps because we don't, like I say, understand the reason why he's decided to approach it in that way. But he has, and he's being successful. We should just allow him to get on with it. And why do you think certain fans or fans don't seem to understand that, I mean, this is the the approach that he's taken? I mean, we all, we're all, everyone has an element of frustration, I suppose, and hope. But why, why do people, I mean, the way people have been expressing themselves has been unfortunate in some instances. And we, Mark and I have commented a couple of times on previous podcasts that we find some of the language used uh, appalling. But is it, is it just mere frustration? Is it mere frustration or is it something else? This sounds a bit patronising, but in the absence of knowing what he's thinking... People will look at what he's doing insofar as they can see what he's doing and they will imagine what they would have thought in order to get them into that circumstance and they will, on some occasions, assume that his intentions aren't particularly honourable because they can't see what he's thinking. And so, like I was saying just now, in the absence of knowledge you get speculation. As soon as you start speculating in terms of his intentions not being honourable, you will start attributing reasons and attributing train of thoughts to, you know, his head that you can't possibly know about that are probably extremely wide of the mark. But in the absence of somebody being able to tell you what that mark is, you know, you'll start to believe you know, the bad things that you've attributed to what he might be thinking. So you kind of get a situation where as soon as the first person says, oh, he must be a bad guy because, you know, if it had been me in that situation, I'd hand the episodes over as I find them. Well, you know, you can't, you don't know why he's not handed episodes over as he's found them, but you've got to think that he must have a good reason for not having. Even if that reason is he decided at the start he would hand everything over in one go, and he's just going to continue until he's found everything he's going to find, so he can hand it over in one go. Even if that's the only reason, if that's what he set out to do, and he's being successful, then I'm happy for him to do that because otherwise you wouldn't have had that success. You've interviewed him recently. Mm. Uh, and so you, are, unlike 99.9% of everyone listening to this, have actually sat in the same room as the man. Yes. I mean, what was the impression that you formed just speaking to him? To me, he sounds like a perfectly decent bloke who's doing an extraordinary thing. Um, what, what did he, how did he present to you? He, the, the way he came across to me is, and this is kind of a bit of a northern thing as well, I think, and being a bit of a northerner myself, I think I could perhaps see this more than maybe some people might. And there's been so many, so much talk about because of the fact that he was kidnapped, what his mental state must be afterwards. Well, his mental state seemed absolutely fine to me. He seemed like a very straightforward person. In other words, the kind of person who, once they've made a decision to go ahead with something, with something, will just keep going until they've done the thing that they decided to go ahead and do. So he's he's obviously had this incident where he's been kidnapped, and obviously that would have caused him problems. But coming out of the other side of it, all I can see 
is a person who said, right, let's make something positive out of this. I've always thought about the idea that nobody's actually been to Africa in person to look for these Doctor Who stories. And it's something that I started to be interested in while I was working in Africa, but couldn't really do because, you know, I was also working, so you don't get to devote the time. Now I've got the time, why not throw myself into it and do it? And that's what he's done. He's thrown himself into it and done it. You can't get more straightforward than that. And so if people didn't keep thinking that he must have other thoughts about what he's doing and other reasons, some of which might be untoward for what he's doing, and just saw that this is a man who has decided to go on a path and is following that path to its conclusion, then I think people would be so much more happy about what he's doing. Because as far as I can see, there's no reason not to be happy with the fact that already we've had the enemy of the world and the web of fear, and there may be more around the corner. Why would you be unhappy about that? So do you expect there'll be further announcements about more returns sometime soon? Oh, sometime soon, I couldn't say. I have no idea how long this might take. I don't think... You know, some people are worried it might take another ten years. I don't think so. I got the impression talking to him... Not that things were winding down, but that he was the better part of the way there. And the rest of what he was doing was not so much a winding up exercise as, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's and just not finishing things up, but making sure that, you know, there was nothing too finished up that he'd missed. Maybe. He's closed the loops. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying I think he's a month away from finishing, or even a year away from finishing. But I think it's more likely to be somewhere close to a year than it is to be five years, for example. I suspect it might be this year, later this year, or early next, sometime within the next 12 months. But that's just a gut instinct of my own, and that's not because I've been told anything that would lead me to believe that. That's just a gut instinct of mine. Mm. But I certainly don't think it's going to be in the next few weeks. <laughs> which is what some people seem to think. So take your Easter holidays, people. Nothing's going to happen. I wouldn't have thought so. You know, I, if if it came completely out of left field and it was Easter, I'd be over the moon. Mm. And I I wouldn't be utterly, utterly shocked. But I would be very surprised, put it that way. Expect the unexpected, JR. You know, on Expect the Unexpected, uh, that's become a catchphrase. And people seem to... They take the mickey out of it now, saying, well, we're all expecting everything, so the unexpected must be less than everything, given the conversation on the forums. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But but the unexpected in that phrase means what you would not have expected before you realised what Phil was looking for. And so the unexpected now has become more of a um, sort of pronoun to describe what he's been doing rather than an adverb to describe how you might think about what he's doing, if you see what I mean. I do see what you mean. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, if I've got my terms right there, grammar was never my strongest point, <laughs> says the writer.
Gayo. We've got a letter from one of our listeners, a, a David from Australia. Uh, David says, Dear 42 to Doomsday, I was delighted to hear that my two favourite Doctor Who podcasts will be combining briefly, with JR being your guest. It's like the Tom Baker cameo in Black 7 that we never got. In honour of this occasion, I'd like to submit the following question for you that I'd love to hear you debate. Whilst many fans clearly love the Moffat era, I know I and many other long-term fans struggle to find anything to enjoy in this period, especially Season 6. The response to this from Moffat supporters is often a variation on the comment that you just don't understand what Moffat is doing. If you did, you'd like it. Isn't it possible that some fans just didn't like this style of Doctor Who? Why is it okay and rational to dislike, for example, Season 22, but not Let's Kill Hitler? Is it possible that in order to appeal to the mass audience... Moffat Doctor Who is to the original series what Downton Abbey is to Brideshead Revisited. <laughs> uh, surely you could level that particular accusation at the end there <clears throat> against Russell T. Davis as well. And, uh, you know, there's this whole thing that's kind of built up around the fact that I tend to, I suppose, use Blue Box Podcast as a platform for defending Moffat. Because I genuinely do really thoroughly enjoy what he's doing. But... Okay, here's the thing. I don't have a problem with people not liking Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. I think it's perfectly natural for some people to like one thing and other people not to. And within the, what we were talking about a little while ago, within the amount of differences in the different eras in Doctor Who, there are bound to be ones that some people enjoy more than others, and of course that some people enjoy less than others. I don't have any problem at all with people not liking the sort of Stephen Moffat era of Doctor Who. What I don't especially like is people thinking that because they don't like it, that means the problem is with the programme, rather than it just being that the programme is currently something they don't like. I don't particularly like... Oh, I don't know, random example plucked from the hat. I don't particularly like the X Factor. But I don't think that that's a problem with the X Factor. A lot of people do like the X Factor. It appeals to those people. Now, Doctor Who is one series that has been called Doctor Who from the start. So we tend to like to think of it as all being the same thing. But as I was saying earlier, that's not actually true. Every time somebody new comes along, Doctor Who will turn into something else. As long as you don't lose that essential Doctor Who-ness that's at the core of Doctor Who, which I think is the idea of a man exploring the universe and of having a beneficial effect on the universe that he's exploring, as long as you've still got that at the core of it, I think you can do different things with the program. And what you do that's different might mean that some people who liked the bit before you came along more might like the bit that came along when you did less. That doesn't mean that what you're doing is not Doctor Who. It just means they don't like that bit. So I'm fine with them not liking that bit as long as they don't tell me that there's something wrong with me because I do like that bit. That's what I don't like. Uh, do you get what I'm saying? I mean, I know we've been critical, I suppose, at times with the, the sort of storytelling that uh, uh, Moffat and the production team have put up. But looking back at some of the uh, some of the uh, you know the new series episodes in the last couple of weeks in preparation for this podcast, I've come away 
enjoying more the Matt Smith stories than I have, um, say, the uh, the RTD stories or the Eccleston yeah. stories. And while, you know, uh, sometimes the arc doesn't feel... The, the arc that's put in place doesn't feel like you get the, you get the payoff at the end of it. Um, that aside, a lot of the stories in the Matt Smith era I've, I've come to realise are very satisfying in and of themselves. I think people expected maybe too much of Stephen Moffat. If you look at Russell T. Davis's arcs, they really didn't pay off. Yeah, it's the season two one, especially. Yeah, yeah. Even Bad Wolf, when it came down to it, in the end, oh, Rose says Bad Wolf and the word goes all over the universe so that she knows to say Bad Wolf when it comes time to say Bad Wolf. It's like, what? He did a really nice job of making it effective. But when it comes down to it, as an arc, it's bollocks. <laughs> no, I mean, I was watching The Eleventh Hour last night and I was immediately struck by uh, not only, I mean, Matt Smith's performance, and we'll talk about that yeah. later, but just, I mean, the solidity of the storytelling. And I suppose um, Moffat, perhaps, in my, to my mind anyway, has suffered from overexposure. Mm. Before he'd become the showrunner, he was doing one or you know two episodes per season. And, you know, compared to the other stories around him... They were, you know, little jewels of perfection in in some instances. Yes. And then um, you, 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 he becomes the showrunner, and all of a sudden, his his stories and storytelling is ubiquitous. And I think possibly we've been spoilt uh, a little bit too much. I think it's more because he's having to tell a different kind of a story now. You know, in the past, he's never had to introduce the companion. He's never had to do a companion farewell story. He's never had to round off an arc. He's never had to do any of those things. He's gone from being the guy who can tell a quiet, self-contained story to a guy who has to tell the big story. And I I don't think he's doing it any less successfully. I just think that people are expecting to see the same things that they saw when he was telling the self-contained stories in the bigger stories when instead they should be expecting something else. And also another point is to do with Moffat and the way people see him is, and given what you were just saying, I think this is more true than ever. People look for problems because they're not necessarily enjoying the kind of stories he's writing, the kind of tone that his Doctor Who has. I think they look for there to be problems where there really aren't any. You know, like the whole duck pock pond thing in series five that was seen as this huge mistake he'd made that he hadn't rounded off the duck pond story when in actual fact it's just a throwaway joke and at the end of the series there was going to be another throwaway joke where they showed the duck pond with ducks on it and the doctor says oh the ducks are back you know it's the throwaway joke but people kind of assume that there's got to be some way in which the lack of ducks on a pond ties into this big arc and they think it's a real problem that Stephen Moffat's not addressed the fact that there are no ducks on this particular pond. Do you know what I'm saying? They're looking for that to be a problem. I'm actually laughing at this, JR, because um, I watched uh, Bells of St. John the other day, and I was watching it, and uh, the doctor says to Clara, how did you get my number? And she goes, oh, an old lady, in, or the lady in the shop gave it to me. And I'm going, well, who was the lady? And I, I emailed Rob next day. I said, who was the lady in the shop in the Bells of St. John? And I was getting fixated on that small point as opposed to watching the rest of the story. I kept saying, why is he throwing away things like that? And I'm looking for a payoff. And I, they're not there. Yeah. And you know what? He he very probably set that up never to pay off because sometimes you do like to leave a little mystery. 
you know that the person who gave the phone number over must have been somebody from the Doctor's past. I said it was Dodo. Yeah. <laughs> the idea... But that's exactly it. The idea that you never find out means that it always could have been Dodo. Or it could have been River Song, Or it could have been Sarah Jane. Or it could have been Rose. You know, it could have been any one of these people. It's up to the... It's up to the viewer's imagination as to which one of those people it was. That's not him doing a bad piece of writing because he didn't tell you who it was. It's the person who's watching it expecting him to do something other than what he's actually doing. We should be thankful that uh, Moffat takes care to involve the viewer more with little little things like that. I mean, you could just do a, a straight mm. A to Z plotted story with no extraneous incident yeah to hook people in but i mean i suppose it snags your snags your thoughts for you know for a few seconds and it, it it's slightly enriching as well the viewing experience because instead of the the, the, yeah. the the show being sort of projected onto you it draws you in that little bit extra it does and, and not only that it can it, like you say it makes it a richer universe because you do have the it could so easily have not put that scene in that story that you didn't need somebody to give Clara the doctor's telephone number or whatever in order to, for her to find him. He could just have had the doctor arriving by coincidence just exactly as he does at the start of every other Doctor Who story. But he doesn't. He puts this nice scene in that doesn't affect the plot in any way, shape or form just to give a little bit more colour to the universe in which his stories are taking place. I love the fact that the stories are this rich, that there's this this much going on. And just because every single thing that happens doesn't pay off in black and white terms at the end of the episode doesn't mean to say that he's not doing his job, because if everything was paying off, it would be a lot less rich of a universe, because he wouldn't have the time to fit all the other stuff in that is what makes the universe as rich as it is. But people probably, their expectations, I mean, in real life, life is messy and, you know, and there are things that happen mm. here, there and everywhere that are, that are never resolved. So I suppose the stories, in a sense, attempt to perhaps replicate that a little bit. I do think pay, things pay off a lot more than people seem to think they do as well. I think people sometimes just kind of seem to miss it. You know, the whole, the TARDIS blowing up at the end of Series 5. I always, from the start of Series 6, from The Impossible Astronaut, it was always my understanding that the silence had blown the TARDIS up and we just hadn't seen them because he was putting in this um, this little uh, motif where we had forgotten about them. You know, he hadn't actually put them in the uh, Series 5 finale, but he had put the idea of them doing that into that episode... And we don't see them till the next year because, you know, it's a slightly meta thing, but we've forgotten that they were in the previous story. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And so when we do get to see them at the start of Series 6, it just clicked with me. Oh, they blew up the TARDIS. It's them whose voice you hear in the TARDIS. Uh, but, you know, most other people seem to have missed that altogether, which is why he had to put the line in the time of the Doctor. And the fact that he only puts a line in the time of the Doctor rather than going back and showing you, I think is what people have a problem with. Maybe if he'd have had a clip from the Big Bang and had photoshopped a couple of silence into the background in the TARDIS, maybe that would have worked better, I don't know. I think we can say that the, the Moffat era is, is an era that rewards a return viewing. 
Mm. Uh, and and, and uh, it, re- it re- rewards the careful viewer, I suppose, more than more than perhaps any other era of the show, especially since it's come back anyway. I think because as fans, we tend to watch things differently the first time we see them anyway. You know, a regular viewer might spot a load of stuff that a fan misses because a fan is concentrating too hard on trying to catch everything. It's a bit like the wood and the trees, do you know what I mean? It's like, if you're looking for the trees you might miss the fact that you're actually standing in the middle of a forest. And at the end of the day, there's no doubting the uh, the appreciation and popularity of you know the, the Matt Smith era under 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 Moffat and, and Matt Smith. Um, I mean, people argue that ratings themselves are not a real measure of quality, but the appreciation index we, we constantly see that the numbers are very high, and, and and the popularity of the show is is as popular as it's ever been and broken new ground. So they must be doing something right, I suppose. When I watch a lot of series, I just finished, for example, season four of Breaking Bad, where the arc of that series started at the start and finished at the end, as opposed to the Moffat ones, where in particular, you know, he said the, the, the Big Bang, where the TARDIS blew up, wasn't resolved at the time of the Doctor, in a very, very short explanation, which can get completely lost. It's a different kind of storytelling, which I don't think, it, I don't think that's necessarily a problem with the fact, with the storyteller, if the storyteller is writing a novel and you're used to reading short stories, you might not be able to engage with the novel properly. Stephen Moffat has tried to turn... I think the Matt Smith era is a completely self-contained single story. I think it's just that it took four years to get through to it is what, you know, annoyed people. But I, as soon as I realised... Because I had a problem with Series 5, but as soon as I saw the first episode of Series 6, when it clicked inside me what was going on, and then I thought, no, that's okay, this will be a novel, however long it takes to get to the end of it, I'm happy with that, I will not expect explanations too soon. I will not expect each of these series to be entirely self-contained. But obviously a lot of people didn't really click with that, and so they're still expecting one kind of storytelling when actually what they're getting is another. And like I say, you know, it's perfectly acceptable not to like the fact that he's changed the type of storytelling. But I, I, for me, I've enjoyed that, and I think that's fine. We'll move on to the last portion of, uh, of David's letter. Um, it's, uh, he continues, JR has often been critical of uh, Christopher H. Bidmead generally, and seasons 18 specifically. However, I rate this as one of my favourite two or three seasons with some brilliantly written and made stories. Is JR's concern that the season is not well made, or that the season failed with the viewers, or both? Well, now, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I, well, given everything I've just said, and some of my best friends like season 18 a lot. I don't have a problem with people liking season 18 because I don't. But I can give you the reasons why I don't especially like season 18. So I can give you a reason why I have a problem with it. And that is on, only that I tend to like Doctor Who when it's fun. When it's not just engaging, but also entertaining. You can watch things that engage you, that don't entertain you. I mean, 
you look at a Peter Greenaway film, you can get to the end of a Peter Greenaway film and you might have had an experience that you wouldn't wish you hadn't had, but you might not at the same time be able to say that it entertained you. I like Doctor Who when it's entertaining, um, <clears throat> which doesn't mean to say it can't do other things at the same time. I think Christopher H. Bidmead and John Nathan Turner was also in large part responsible for this, for trying to get rid of the undergraduate humour. I think Christopher H. Bidmead forgot how to entertain. His stories engage, but I don't think they entertain. They're no fun to watch, which doesn't mean to say that you can't enjoy them. You can enjoy something without it being fun, but I'd rather enjoy something and it be fun. And prior to season 18, I don't think there had ever been an extended period of Doctor Who when it wasn't both fun as well as being engaging. Even series 7, which is the most inverted commas adult series of Doctor Who prior to season 18, you've still got John Pertwee gurning and silly aliens with silly voices and over-the-top authority figures and people making jokes. You've still got all that stuff. You get to season 18 and all those things are removed from Doctor Who. Such that for me, season 18 and season 22 and season 23 don't feel like Doctor Who anymore. Which is not to say that I don't think you can appreciate them as something else maybe, but I can't appreciate them as Doctor Who. Those are the only three series of the entire, entire span of 50 years. Those are the only three series that I can't watch for entertainment. I mean, Megloss is a sort of throwback to season 17. I mean, what about that story? I think that's an exception, actually. You've pointed that out very well. I think that's an exception. And there are, there is much of season 18 that I do like. I quite like Mm. Keeper of Trarkin. I just don't think Keeper of Trarkin's an especially good Doctor Who story, but I still think it's a perfectly good story in its own right. There are things in even my least favourite stories in that season, like uh, Legopolis. There are still things in Legopolis that I like. I just don't like the whole package. Yeah, sometimes I suppose. I mean, uh, my friends know of my appreciation of Revelation of the Daleks, and I Mm. I mean, I openly admit that um, I enjoy the atmosphere and I enjoy the acting, but I I do have to admit that it is a a grueling experience. I mean, if you if you were to really sit down and think about what is actually going on, it's 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 something that you survive more than enjoy uh, at the end of the day. And I mean, I I take your point there, and I I take your point with some uh, some aspects of of season eighteen where um, it just feel it doesn't feel like the Tom Baker I grew up with, the Tom Baker stories that I grew up with. Yeah. Uh, it's very it's very dark and gloomy, and I suppose the whole atmosphere around the production didn't really help no but um I mean I do take your point that you can you know you can watch something and like it but not really you know be entertained by it and at the end of the day, I suppose Doctor Who is a television show that's meant to entertain yeah and uh, in some instances it, it it fails in that I think people seem to forget as well I know there's this huge debate about whether or not it's a children's series, whether you regard it as a children's series or a family show, the important thing is that children can still enjoy it. And we'll come to this when we talk about Matt Smith in a minute, because I think this is a huge part of the Matt Smith thing. But there's a quote by Christopher H. Bidmead, and I think it kind of sums up season 18 in a nutshell. He said, as a 40-year-old, I understand the science in season 18 of Doctor Who. I don't understand why a 10-year-old wouldn't be able to cope with it. And do you know what I mean? In that one sentence, he is 
completely revealed that he had no thought whatsoever for the hugely significant under 10 portion of the population who were watching Doctor Who when he was putting season 18 together. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think you've got to allow whatever you want to write to still appeal to anybody who might want to watch. Uh, Being in Australia, you perhaps don't understand this as well as somebody who grew up with it, but in Britain, Doctor Who was mass populist entertainment. Always has been. Is when you take that and say, right, we don't want that aspect of the population. We're happy to appeal to a cult audience that it doesn't really work anymore. I think with that season, as you said, a lot of the humour's been stripped back and that mm. followed through to Davison's era as well. He was, st- he was starting to inject a bit of humour in, yeah. in his latest series. Do you think, though, if Tom was allowed to get some, a couple of jokes in, that it might change your perception of it? Do you know what? I think it might, because there's quite a lot of stuff in season 18 that I think I would like if the tone were slightly different. Christopher H. Bidmead... I mean, for all the fact that he says it's hard science, there's actually quite a lot of fairy tale stuff in there, similar to Stephen Moffat's. There's most of the stories feature a fairy tale castle, metaphorically in one way, shape, or form or another. You look at Full Circle and Warrior's Gate, are both based around State of Decay. Well, State of Decay is perfect, but Full Circle and Warrior's Gate. Both use spaceships in the same way as State of Decay does, in that they've become somehow fixed points around which a sort of new evolution is occurring. It's a fairy tale castle. It's the tone of the stories that I think drags it down. And it, and yes, even something as simple as Tom Baker being able to make a joke a couple of times an episode might have lightened the tone enough to make the whole experience something that was just a little bit more fun than it actually was. Christopher Bidney's writing, bringing in science. Christopher Bidney's writing, adding the logic. Christopher Bidney's writing, making it boring. Making it boring. Christopher Bidney's writing. So our main topic tonight is a uh, discussion on the uh, on the on the new series, particularly around which of the three modern doctors do we think are the best. And we're going to exclude John Hurt here because even though his performance was very good, he was just a one-off. So the criteria for what we're defining as a best is is a fairly movable uh, position. But generally, um, let's talk about the performance of of the doctors, uh, the public reception to them, and also the fan reaction. And the quality of the stories of the era. So let's have a look at the uh, the modern era from a, a slightly different angle where we're going to look at the positives. So, JR, we're going to throw it over to you. Ooh. Well, the thing about Christopher Eccleston is, and I couldn't really talk about the positives without talking about the context, I don't think, because the context is what the good and the bad come out of. Now, Christopher Eccleston was deliberately chosen to be a slightly different doctor from the ones we'd been used to in the classic series, in order to sort of ameliorate what the programme was in bringing it back for people who might have found being thrown right in at the deep end something a bit too difficult to take to. So Christopher Eccleston is this not very eccentric Doctor in the way we know the Doctor as being eccentric. And I... 
I think he did a really, really good job of getting a lot, getting across to the audience what the Doctor is without, how shall I put this, without going over the top about it. I mean, as I said, he's been chosen not to be too eccentric for an audience that might find the eccentricity off-putting, but he still manages to get the idea that the Doctor is an eccentric character across in his performance, which is quite remarkable when you look at what Christopher Eccleston's done elsewhere. His performance in Doctor Who is hugely different from anything else I've ever seen him do before or since, and you wouldn't have expected him to be an actor with that versatility before you see him in Doctor Who. I think some people, when they first saw Christopher Eccleston as Doctor Who, didn't like the performance because it was so different from what they would have been expecting Christopher Eccleston to do. But like I say, just because your expectation has been confounded doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad thing. I think he does a really, really, really good job of getting across what the Doctor is, and at the same time, I'm really glad he left after one year, because if he'd have done that for another year, or for a third year, it would have been really difficult to bring the Doctor back to what we know him as having been. You'd have had to carry on with more of the same of what Christopher Eccleston was doing, because that would have bedded in far too far with a modern audience for you to be able to change it back. So in many ways, we would regard Eccleston uh, and the approach that was taken as sort of rebuilding the foundations of the show for the audience. Yeah, he's, in a way, he's almost as almost as much of an aside as the John Hurt Doctor is. Because if you look at the sort of lineage of the character, you go from basically Sylvester McCoy to David Tennant. And you can see the connection. But you look at Paul McGann, and obviously we don't get a chance to see enough of him. But that is played differently for a different audience. And then you look at Christopher Eccleston, and that also is played differently for a different audience. But what Christopher Eccleston does is really cleverly brings it just far enough back that you can then have David Tennant, who kind of comes out of Sylvester McCoy, to continue the series back from where it came from. And you've just had to have this one year where you kind of... What you've kind of done with that one year is take what the series is, dust off a few of the things that are unnecessary for the series, but that we like about the series, and just given the audience what's necessary about the series, so you can put the things that you like about the series back on afterwards. Do you think Eccleston struggled a bit with the, the comedic elements? Do you think that was actually part of his his character where his doctor was so damaged from the time war and a, and a tough man's stance? He was just really uncomfortable as a character doing the comedic aspects. No, I think you're right. No, I think that's it. I think the the thing that sold it, really, really sold it for me, is right at the end of the first episode, when he says to Rose, you could come along with me. And and this being the part of that scene where she, she says no. And the look on his face, he looks for all the world like a teenager who has never asked a girl out before and is asking a girl out for the very first time ever. And it's absolutely terrified and knows deep inside that she's going to say no but is forcing himself to do it anyway and the comedy is the same 
you know, the end of the world where you've got the bits at the start where he's nodding along to the music, making jokes. It all feels slightly forced. That's not because the actor's having to force it because he doesn't like doing it. That's because the character's forcing it because he's so damaged. It's the only way he can see to mending himself is to make himself do the things that he knows he used to do in order that they become natural for him once again. I think it's a brilliant performance. That's an interesting approach because I, I've in, in watching those episodes again recently, I, I yes, Eccleston, we all know he handles the drama wonderfully well and, you know, we've seen that time and time again before and after his time on the show, so there's no question about that. I just, I mean, I, I mean I'll take your point. I mean, I often found that at certain points it was this if he there was a certain reticence about him in in, in terms of approaching the script for a, for a given for a given uh, aspect you know a given scene and sometimes he just comes across as being diffident i'm not quite sure what i'm actually meant to be doing here i don't feel comfortable with what the script is asking me at this particular point and i mean you say that is actually part of the performance and that's not really that's never really dawned on me until you've mentioned that. So, I mean, listening to that, you know, I'll have to go back and, and look at it again. Yeah, I think what seals it for me, like I say, is that, and it's just a facial expression at the end of Rose where he asks her along, and you can absolutely see it in his face. He's forcing himself to do things that he knows he can do, but he's lost the ability to do, and he's forcing himself to do those things so that he can get that ability back. So it's a much more subtle performance than I've possibly given him credit for over the last few years. I think it is, and I, I, I'm the same as you. When I first saw The End of the World, I thought, oh my God, what's Eccleston doing here? And then when I went back and saw Rose again, the first time I watched it, after I'd seen The End of the World, I put the two and two together and realised, no, that is what the Doctor's doing, that is the performance. I was just going to say, to move on to something more prosaic in terms of the popularity of the show at the time, I mean, when it came back... Obviously, the BBC marketing machine had uh, had uh, you know promoted it to the public, but it did start with a, a ratings bang and, and largely sustained it. And I think the ability of the show to embed itself once again in the public consciousness did give when it, when David Tennant came along did allow, as you say, for uh, the public to be more accepting of the show and allow the production team to to have a more quirky or eccentric performance from 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 David Tennant. Yeah, I think as well. Um... And I think Russell T. Davis has hinted at this, but never said it outright. But I think he set that first series up a little bit like The X Factor that I mentioned earlier. On The X Factor, when they get to the knockout rounds, I don't watch it, but I mean, I've seen enough of it to gather that this is what they do. The ten singers, or however many, each week they have to do a different type of song, right? And they get knocked out if they don't do it very well, presumably. Now, with Rose... She has 10 stories. And what you're following is that character as Russell T. Davis gives her 10 challenges to overcome before at the end of the series, she's the winner of Doctor Who. Uh, You know, to sort of draw the analogy. But you know what I mean? In, say, for instance, The End of the World, that's her first time in the future. Can she cope with that? In The Unquiet Dead, that's the first time in the past. Can she cope with that? And just to sort of land on the more obvious examples father's day this is the point at which she realizes that with a time machine you can change the past but you shouldn't can she cope with that each week she's got a different thing that she needs to cope with and at the end of the 10 stories not only is she a much improved person for having learned and evolved through all this stuff 
But at the same time, in terms of the way the audience are watching the programme, we can see that she's had that success. So when she becomes the bad wolf and she's the character who saves everything at the end, it's natural for the audience watching that that's how the story should finish. Mark, what do you think of the, what do you think of uh, Peter, Peter Christopher Eccleston and his uh, and his performance? As Jr. alluded to before, um, I actually wrote down in my notes as well that I don't think Eccleston's portrayal could have gone further than a second series because they travelled down a road so far and it would have been hard to to come back. I think I watched uh, End of the World as well. Uh, the great thing about Eccleston was when he did the dramatic bits. He smashed it out of the park. The tirade against the Dalek, especially. Yeah. Uh, the Everybody Lives speech. And also when he's talking to Jape from the end of the world, when, when she's talking to him, him about being the last of the Time Lords and he, just that look he gives and, and the tear come down from his eyes. I think in terms of the, act, the actors, I think he was definitely the best actor of the three modern uh, series to, to play the Doctor. But again, with this portrayal, I think I had a very finite life. I'm not entirely sure I agree about the acting, though, because I think when we get to Matt Smith, well, we'll get there in a minute. Well, I think David Tennant was in the, was in the lucky position that the groundwork had been laid in the first year, as we mentioned before, and the uh, the audience uh, you know, had fallen in love with the show again. And David Tennant brought, a, in my opinion anyway, a sort of a more uh, a broader performance in that he could do you know happy sad angry all that sort of thing and but also a more quirky quirky performance and i think at the end of the day his performance is uh is 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 a is a great deal more crowd pleasing uh than say eccleston's was um i certainly enjoyed it a, a great deal more than than christopher eccleston's performance i probably it doesn't have as much of the richness that eccleston bought but there is, if if we're there to be watching the show to be entertained and and, and taken along by the lead actor, I, I tend to think that uh, that uh, perhaps of all three of the actors, David Tennant was the most entertaining to watch. Um, the, whether he was the best is, is another thing. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think that as a Doctor Who fan coming into Doctor Who and having seen what Christopher Eccleston was doing with it, I think the timing was perfect for David Tennant and it is because he can give a straightforward enough performance that people who are not necessarily Doctor Who fans can engage with him but leverage enough eccentricity into that that it still feels like Doctor Who and the Doctor Who fans can can see that they're getting more of the show that they used to love when they were kids back than they had necessarily the previous year allows David Tennant to sort of navigate this middle ground that um, sort of manages to include everybody. It's kind of that those three years with David Tennant are kind of Doctor Who at the point at which it is most inclusive of anybody who might want to watch. My favourite Tennant anecdote, and I think I mentioned it before, was sitting at a at a uh, outside waiting for my daughters to do, do a dance competition and I was sitting on a couch and there was a 16 year old or 17 year old girl sitting a couple of seats away from me and she had a laptop out and what was she watching she was watching a clip of uh, David Tennant's regeneration scene and that that that's just that's so it amused me and surprised me in equal measure but as we've said Tennant's performance was pitched so that Anyone in the demo, you know, in the demographic, anyone in the viewing audience, a very wide ranging range of of, of ages would, uh, you know, be drawn to him and to his performance. 
And I suppose, you know, the 15 and 16-year-olds frequently love Lorne and seeing David Tennant uh, go in such a dramatic and, you know, possibly sad sad manner was very appealing to them. I'm surprised the girl's laptop battery survived the uh, regeneration scene. It went on for like an hour and a half, didn't it? (laughs) I think, uh, going by what you're saying about um, that sort of emo thing, I I think that's kind of the best and the worst of those three years in a nutshell, because you've kind of got a doctor that Russell T. Davis wants to write emotional stuff for, and having had such a success with the Christopher Eccleston series, where there was that emotional story spread across all the ten stories, then you come to a point where you've got a non-finite doctor. You know, Russell T. Davis in that first series didn't know he was going to get a second series, so he's told this entirely self-contained story, which, probably coincidentally, but means that it feels natural that Eccleston leaves at that point, because that story is told. When you start out with a non-finite Doctor, and you don't know how long the actor's going to stay with the programme, you can't foresee how much time you've got to tell the story. So what you tend to do instead is tell individual stories, but which all aim to hit the same place as that story that you told across 13 episodes did the previous year. So you get things like, just in that first year, School Reunion, which is, in terms of the emotional development for the character, something that could have taken an entire season to unfold, but that unfolds in 45 minutes at the end of which you have to completely reset your character in order to allow him to go through the girl in the fireplace, which again could have taken place across the entire series, but is distilled into 45 minutes. And you see where I'm going with this. Whereas Rose had challenges to overcome in the first series, each of which developed her to the point at which she was able to be ready for the next challenge, until at the end of the series she'd reached a place at which she was what I described as successful. In the second series, instead of David Tennant undergoing a challenge and then being in the right place for the next one, he undergoes a challenge and has to reset back to where he was at the start of that challenge before he can go into the next story. And so it continued. And I think that's... In terms of those people who are watching Doctor Who for David Tennant's performance, that's brilliant. Because it means that each week you get everything you want out of that actor. In terms of the ongoing story, I think it's problematic because Russell T. Davis has to keep ramping up the individual stories in order to be able to find somewhere for the actor to find the same place rather than him just being on a treadmill. But do you think um, with with Tennant, should he have left at the end of Series 4? Definitely. Because emotionally you think, oh, he's going to leave at the end of Seasons 4, and he didn't. And there was this, like, this coda which went on for two years. And by the time he, he left, you were sort of not entirely sad to see him go, which, you know, really worked against what his whole character was about. I, I think you're right. I don't think there ever actually was a plan, funnily enough, to um, have him leave at the end of Journey's End because that story seems designed for it, doesn't it? And if you look at it, it's also from a production point of view. If David Tennant had regenerated at the end of that first episode into whomsoever is taking over and you'd have also had the handy doctor there as well, that would have allowed you to make the rest of that episode with David Tennant there 
so that the people catching it on their cameras as they're filming outdoors don't realise that this other guy's actually taken over already. It's like Adric in Time Flight all over again. <laughs> it is! Why they didn't do that, God alone knows. But you're right, if he'd have gone then, he would have gone at the height of his popularity. And as it was, he went at the depth <laughs> of his non-popularity. It was great to see him again, though, in the, uh, the Day of the Doctor. I thought he rehabilitated himself in my eyes a bit. Completely. Because that's where he should have, you know, if he'd have um, left the character at the end of Journey's End and he had have gone then, you know, that's where you would have, like seeing John Pertwee back in The Five Doctors, you, there's enough time by the time you get to The Day of the Doctor, just about, for you to want to see David Tennant back and for you to remember the good bits about his era. That's right. It's always the same when you're living through something. If you're not particularly enjoying something... You focus on that while you're living through it. Mm. Once you get to the end of it, you can look back and see the good bits. And that's what you got in The Day of the Doctor. David Tennant's uh, era, phenomenally popular with ratings and viewing audiences. The show begins to break uh, into the United States and uh, David Tennant leaves and Matt Smith comes along. The funny thing is about when Matt Smith comes in is that, given what we were saying, you have had um, four years with David Tennant, three series and a bit, where you've got kind of this emotional thing going on in the middle of every story. And you've got a certain kind of person who's going to watch that kind of a program. But Stephen Moffat, although he pays lip service to that, and although Matt Smith's Doctor is obviously not without emotion whatsoever, and, you know, Stephen Moffat will do the sort of sentimental thing at the end of a series, he's telling a different kind of story with a different kind of Doctor. And in a funny way, it's much more like the classic series in that it doesn't focus on the emotional so much, which is what makes me find it odd sometimes that classic series fans don't seem to like it so much. Because what Stephen Moffat's done is taken a program that was kind of inclusive of everybody, but aimed more at the upper teens, and he's made a program that's inclusive of everybody, but is aimed more at the maybe lower teens or the late tweens, as it were. He's made Doctor Who, to my mind, more the programme that it was when I was growing up, where it was a programme that everybody could watch, but that was of specific interest to 8- to 12-year-old boys. And I think, you know, that's what we've got now. And I think that's what Matt Smith brings to it as well. His characterisation of the Doctor has got that kind of... I know we talk about the waving around of the sonic screwdriver at every available moment but he's slightly mad he's like where where is david let's go back to eccleston eccleston was like your geography teacher who was safe and dependable and just a little bit mad david tennant is like the history teacher who has this eccentricity that makes you want to involve makes you want to be involved in the lesson he's teaching you but he still feels like a teacher. Matt Smith doesn't feel like a teacher. He feels like a mad bastard who's wandered into the classroom and is just freaking out in front of the teacher. Do you know what I mean? He's bonkers. Yeah, he yeah, is. he's absolutely bonkers. Yeah. And for ten-year-old boys, what could be more engaging than that? It's actually quite a good thing, though, because if the show is to survive and get ratings like it has, it needs to do something like that to engage mm. those that audience. Yeah. So I'm not surprised they're doing it. Yeah, it's it's working. People are still watching Doctor Who in exactly the same numbers as were before. And if some people have left, other people have joined because they like what Matt Smith's doing. I think Matt Smith is 
of the three, I mean, we'll come to this in a minute, but I think of the three, Matt Smith is the Doctor who, in spite of the fact that he loves to wave around the sonic screwdriver and flap his arms and sort of waft his fringe, you know, which are all sort of new series things, but once you get past all those sort of surface things, on the inside, I think of the three, he's managed to capture what being the Doctor is more than even the others. I think David Tennant's problem is perhaps that he knew what the Doctor should be and was desperate to achieve that, whereas Matt Smith's come into it completely cold, so he's just being the Doctor. I agree with you. I think Smith's Doctor to me is, I might as well say, the best of the three because he has that Doctorness. Yes. And in terms of performance, he's the most interesting to watch because he's really sort of starting out on his acting journey... Yeah. And you, you're watching him go through it, where Eccleston and Tennant had obviously had runs on the board. But for me, Matt Smith's performance has been the most interesting, and uh, I've got a lot out of it. And I was genuinely sad to see him go, and I really wish he stayed another year. There are some things about his performance that can get annoying, like the flapping of the arms and the waving of the sonic But uh, But to me, every time he goes off and starts doing something, he manages to pull it back just before it gets annoying. And then mm. he'll do something that's so brilliant that you forget the fact that you were even starting to get annoyed in the first place. Right. Rob! <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was just going to say that, uh, like Mark, I found that um, uh, seeing Matt Smith was probably the most upsetting of all, uh, you know, Eccleston and, and David Tennant. I felt that he wore the role, The uh, it was the easiest fit for him out of, the, out of all three of the modern Doctors, that from the, from the get-go, uh, the performance that he gave seemed to me a more true performance that he embraced the role, he embraced being what the Doctor was, and it just it was it just like slipping on an old old comfortable coat. It was it was just very easy for him to portray that slightly mad character. And you know why? Just very briefly to interject, but you know why? Instead of instead of coming up with an idea of what they wanted the Doctor to be and choosing an actor to fit their idea of what they wanted to be, they watched a lot of actors and chose the one who was most naturally the doctor. And it shows on it shows on the screen. His mm. his performance is is just is easily the easiest to watch. Where sometimes uh, for me anyway, Eccleston's would grate, and Tennant's would sometimes you just sort of I, I I couldn't quite embrace it wholeheartedly as mm. I'd like to. Matt Smith's was was just a wonderful pure performance. And uh, the, just just briefly, I mean, some of the stories that I liked the approach that, that Smith and Moffat took to it. Of bringing a more, I suppose, there's more of an emotional core anyway to the performance for me um, that I've found, and a lot of the stories that I like from his his time, like the Doctor's Wife, uh, A Christmas Carol, uh, Amy, Vincent and the Doctor. There's a there's a real heart and emotion to it that I think that he brought to the role and carried off really well, which is probably part of the reason why I got really sentimental, you know, thinking about him going and then actually watching the time of the Doctor. Uh, and it's the warmest portrayal of the three, and that's, I think, why I would put him at number one. You know, I like that as well. When you don't write the sentimentality into something, but allow the actor to bring that because the essence of it is there. Uh, do you know what I mean? Not so much Vincent and the Doctor, but in a lot of the Matt Smith stories, rather than rather than have Stephen Moffat write something like Russell T. Davis would write, where the sort of emotional impact is in the script Stephen Moffat would allow uh, would write a story that would allow for an emotional impact but only the emotional impact that the actor brings to it <clears throat> which is again something I really like you know there's not too much sentimentality so uh, Mark you're three two and one uh, Matt Smith is number one 
Uh, Tennant is number two, and uh, Eccleston is rounding out number three. It's like trying to choose your favourite child, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, they've all been magnificent, but Smith just nails it for me. Uh, well, I, 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 I'm similar. Uh, Matt Smith, one. David Tennant, two. Uh, Christopher Eccleston, three. Though... Um, I find it very easy to rank them, unlike my children. So I've got to go the other way. I've got to get Matt Smith one. I think Matt Smith is, you know, once we get another 20 years down the road from now, I think Matt Smith will be seen in legendary terms as perhaps the best Doctor of all time, or certainly up there with Patrick Trout and as the top two. So Matt Smith's definitely number one. Uh, number two, I'd say Christopher Eccleston. I find more subtlety and more reality in his performance. And David Tennant, I like a lot of what he does. I think there are things he does every now and again that just leave me wanting more from him as an actor than the other two. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to our, uh, our very long and very, uh, very well, hopefully very interesting podcast. JR, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I hope uh, you've enjoyed it as much as I certainly have. I've not enjoyed it at all, but it, I do feel very pleased inside that I was able to come in and do you this favour. <laughs> <laughs> it's been great. I've really enjoyed myself. I feel like I've talked too much. People don't tune into this podcast to listen to me. They tune in to listen to you guys. It's all reflected glory for us, Jaya. Um, if you want to uh, pl- plug a couple of things, Jaya, um, the magazine, Starburst, and, and, the, and, the, and the podcast, where people can find them. Oh, to be honest, I think we plugged them all at the start of the episode, and I've no idea where you can find them. But you know what? I always find Google works wonders. You know, Starburst is starburstmagazine.com, I'm pretty sure. So you just type in Starburst Magazine, all as one word, and then .com, and that will take you to a world of wonderful things, including where you can buy the magazine, where you can download the podcast, and all this kind of stuff. And issue 396 is the uh, the issue with uh, the f- interview with Phil Morris, so uh, seek that out. Oh, definitely. And that's current in Australia at the moment, isn't it? Oh, no, 397 is on the shelves. I saw it yesterday, so it's out there. All right, Jaya, uh, thank you once again. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, all the best for the future. Thank you, and uh, and we'll speak again soon. Bye-bye. I couldn't resist getting that in at the end there. You've been listening to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the Doctor Who podcast hosted by Robin Mark. And I'm JR. You can contact us on our Twitter account at 42 to Doomsday. You can email us at our Gmail account, 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. Until we meet again, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon. have gone too far in season 17 shows Daft plots and silly ideas hit an all-time low Ooh, The show's at a crossroads we need a firm hand So Barry tells John I've got just a plan Someone who's writing is sure to enthrall Think that there's really just one man we can call Christopher Bid needs writing, bringing in science. Christopher Bid needs writing, adding the logic. 
Christopher bid me writing, making it boring, making it boring. Christopher bid me writing. You don't need no toys or any gimmicks here. He'll ditch that screwdriver. You can have no fear. Ooh, ooh, ooh. All you wanted was fun, but you're getting his leer. Writing, rewriting, it's never first draft. Holding the script is the core of his craft. Taking his time just to hammer out all the joy. Christopher Bid needs writing, bringing in science. Christopher Bid needs writing, acting. Logic. Christopher Bid meets writing, making it boring, making it boring. Christopher Bid meets writing. We were spending a lot more time trying to make the stories really, really good, strong stories, and, and the characters good, strong characters. It was a, a completely different take on the show. It might not be silly, but at least it's all fact. Delivered to you with some poison panache. So why are you left depressed and weary? Like you've sat a paper on complex string theory. Christopher Bid needs writing, bringing in science. Christopher Bid needs writing, acting the logic. Christopher Bid meets writing, making it boring, making it boring. Christopher Bid meets writing. Christopher Bid meets ranting, lecturing writers. Christopher Bid meets crazy, flooding the TARDIS. Christopher Bid meets writing, making it boring, making it boring. Christopher Bid meets writing.